For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The state Supreme Court declares unconstitutional a measure dealing with the distribution of alcohol. Senate Bill 608 required the top 25 brands be available to all distributors. The justices felt this was directly in opposition to state question 792 passed by voter voters. Ryan, can you explain what this means? I mean, well, in the court's words here, it said Senate Bill 608 is clearly palpably and plainly inconsistent with the grant of discretion to liquor and or wine manufacturer to determine what uh, what wholesaler sells its product. I mean, and this is kind of the result that Neva and I had been talking about all along. You know, the folks that were opposed to these new requirements in the Constitution, uh, they tried to go about changing this constitutional provision through a statute, something that the legislature passes and the governor signs. And you just, you can't do that. And, you know, the, the plain wording of Senate Bill 608, as the court recognized here, was just inconsistent with a constitutional grant of uh, authority to wholesalers, liquor wholesalers in the state of Oklahoma. And if you don't like that, the way that the court has told you you need to address it now is to go out and change the Constitution, mm-hmm. amend the Constitution. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if there's a path forward on that, if there's a if there's a, an actual campaign. Uh, I mean, there's very limited window right now for somebody to file uh, an initiative petition to amend the Constitution. Just the time frame is getting harder and harder, if not impossible, for somebody to file and then successfully collect the signatures that they would need to amend the Constitution. Um, or if we see that maybe next year or the year after that, or if there's a legislative effort uh, because the legislature still could do that. I mean, there right. could be a lobbying effort where the legislature would put this constitutional question in front of the voters for the 2020 election in November. Again, that seems uh, unlikely, but Senate Bill 608 did get a majority support and did get the governor's signature. So um, those are kind of the options moving forward. But I don't think that the Supreme Court's decision here was a huge surprise. Neva? I, I think that's right. I don't think it was a surprise. And I think the idea, as you say, Ryan, uh, that the the legislature might uh, initiate some some action during this session seems unlikely. Uh, I think the the court in that five four decision, I mean, made it very clear that any change like this needed to be a constitutional amendment. And I think it also uh, speaks to the to the matter that was raised even uh, throughout the course of this debate, even mm-hmm. even leading up to the uh, Supreme Court decision about the fact that that Senate Bill six hundred eight uh, walked back much of what state question uh, 792 had had uh, uh, been put in place by the voters. Right. So, you know, again, this was one of those efforts by people that wanted to see something specific happen. Uh, they made a concerted effort to get the votes and uh, get it passed through the legislature, persuaded the governor that it was a bill to be signed, and he signed it. But I think uh, when we really look at what happened uh, Wednesday at the Supreme Court, it really kind of, uh, really kind of puts a final touch on this whole on this whole proposition and and it will be interesting to see as ryan says will something move forward i think that remains to be seen right and the state chamber came out and applauded the justices and said this was this was a, a law that didn't nobody really wanted and so even if they tried to now try to put push through a constitutional amendment if you're not, if the Republicans don't have the backing of the state chamber, it could be a little bit difficult to get through. Well, and when you think about it, I mean, from a business or a chamber perspective, I mean, when you're talking about the uh, uh, the sale, the manufacturer choosing the wholesalers that they that they mm-hmm. want, whether it's automobiles, soft drinks, mm-hmm. <laughs> pet food, you name it. I mean, that's what uh, is at the core principle of what uh, uh, what businesses uh, think about and operate from. So, you know, I think that uh, this whole issue with the 
uh, uh, with the liquor industry and 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 what went on here is a is is speaks to many other things uh, in a much broader context. Yeah, and that and I think that that's right. I mean, the what what the uh, the proponents of this this change would want to happen is is kind of against a lot of Republican principles, a lot of Democratic it's principles free of free enterprise, yeah. capitalism, and the ability to make these decisions as a business owner of what brands you're going to take, you know, how you're going to market them. You know, those are things that that these uh, businesses in just about every other industry you contract for. And yeah. you, you know, there's an expectation. You know, this is what you're going to do, and this is what I'm going to do, and this there's a meeting of the minds. That's yeah. right. And um, I think that it's it would be a really tough sell. And when the voters you know, moved away from a system that did have a lot of control over, you know, how wholesalers and distributors dealt with different products. Uh, and uh, that, to me, seemed more consistent with where Oklahomans are in general with the way businesses, regardless of what industry you're in, should operate. Yeah, to have a forced sale system versus the manufacturer's right to choose, I mean, is really the essence of this whole debate. Yeah. An initiative petition to put redistricting before a committee rather than lawmakers gets a hearing from the state Supreme Court. If approved by justices, supporters would have 90 days to gather more than 175,000 signatures as it changes the Constitution. Neva, what are the arguments here? Well, it, it seemed to me, I mean, the two hours of debate Tuesday before the court, I mean, the supporters really uh, are hanging their hat exclusively on this right of to, to reduce gerrymandering. Their, their notion is that uh, whoever the majority party is, whatever majority party uh, is in place at the time of redistricting, they're going to dictate and control the outcome that would favor them. But when you look at what the critics or the opponents of this said, I mean, they went through a whole long list of things that uh, that they felt were uh, in question with this proposed proposed state question, including violating the state constitution because it contains more than one subject. Uh, We've heard that before, that the gist or the description appears to uh, uh, not be sufficient, which one of the justices uh, took real issue with uh, in in that uh, discussion. Uh, They went on to talk about the fact that that the issue of combining federal redistricting, which is addressed in the U.S. Constitution, with state redistricting, which is in the U.S. in the state constitution mm-hmm. that you ha- that it violated a person's First Amendment rights, and so you had uh, uh, the other issue was uh, who would be prohibited from serving on the redistricting uh, commission uh, specifically, and also whether someone uh, switched parties within a, a prescribed four-year preceding time frame to the apportionment would be ineligible. Again, a First Amendment issue that was raised. So there seemed to be in the arguments so much more of a compelling. Uh, uh, argument across the board uh, with the critics than with the supporters. So we'll see what the court says. Right. Well, I mean, you know, just kind of setting the stage for, for what happened at the court, you have two of the premier appellate lawyers in initiative petition referendum world arguing against each other. Robert McCampbell on behalf of the, the protestants here and then Melanie Regani on behalf of the initiative petition circulators and that are trying to end gerrymandering in the state of Oklahoma. It was interesting in the, the protests, a lot of the protest brief and, and the arguments before the court were really policy decisions. Uh, they weren't really the, the legal arguments. And, you know, Neva talked about the single subject violation. There's uh, a First Amendment challenge that's been raised here as well. But really what we saw was a policy argument, a political argument that really is best decided by the voters this right. this coming November and not really by the court. So I think the court, all of those policy arguments, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the court says that's not that's not really our job here. Our job is to decide the law. And before a, and I, I've got some experience in this, both as 
somebody who has been a lawyer for a group protesting a ballot measure as being patently unconstitutional and shouldn't be shouldn't be put out to a vote of the people, and now as a as a party to a protest with eight oh seven with a similar challenge. And so, I mean, I'm very familiar with with the way this works and. The bar uh, that a protester has to meet before the Supreme Court will say that the fundamental right to circulate an initiative petition, to get signatures and to put it up for a vote of the people, before they're going to bar even the signature collection and say that it's patently unconstitutional, that's a really high bar. It's really difficult to meet. I've met it in the past, but it's not easy to meet. What you have to demonstrate that it's clearly uh, and manifestly unconstitutional. And so... You know, the single subject requirement, that, that's, that's a really important part of our Constitution. But here we're talking about uh, the single subject within an article to the Constitution. It's not just amending a part of the Constitution. It's adding an article, article to the Constitution. So the single subject requirements there are a little lower, which makes it even harder for the protesters to meet their burden. The First Amendment issues also are not entirely clear. I mean, even if there are First Amendment issues here, are they so clear and manifest that it would allow the court to step in, intervene, and keep people from signing this petition and putting it on the ballot in November. That's a, that's a high bar. But there are you know, you know, great lawyers on both sides. These are serious arguments that mm-hmm. the court's going to be considering uh, over the coming days. And they've got to decide pretty quickly because they've got to get this petition out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think uh, it is incumbent upon the court to make a decision, and it is one that everyone is certainly uh, watching with great interest because of all of the potential ramifications. And, and the court... Um, on on these, you know, and they recognize that, and and so oftentimes what you have are, these are very expedited hearings. Uh, so the the briefing process is faster than normal uh, than a normal Supreme Court case. The oral arguments are set faster, and so the lawyers on 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 each side have you know normally you would have you know maybe months to prepare for a Supreme right. Court case, uh, an oral argument. Here, all of that is compressed into the time frame of weeks. And and let's remember that there have been redistricting challenges in the past. I mean, this is when we get into the season where we're talking about redistricting, there is always uh, two very uh, diametrically opposed sides uh, in, in terms of uh, philosophy, approach, and what they believe, uh, how it should be structured. But the notion that the system uh, increases polarization and re- reduces accountability, which were the words that were used by Attorney Regali in, in um, making some of her oral arguments, I think, again, you talk about a high bar and a threshold, uh, you know, for the court to look at, it is going to be interesting to see if they're persuaded by that particular notion. The Muscogee Creek Nation is getting ready to join in a lawsuit over gaming compacts. It would be the fourth tribe to join the challenge against Governor Stitt and his claim the compacts expired at the end of the year. Ryan, could this impact the fight between the governor and the tribes? Yeah, and I think that, you know, the delay in, in uh, this nation joining the lawsuit it isn't really a delay it is that they were you know, concerned about the substance. It was, you know, procedural administrative. They're going through a transition in leadership uh, at the nation. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see other tribal governments in the state of Oklahoma join this this litigation as time moves on. And the governor has now filed his mm-hmm. response. The governor's response was is asking, you know, so the, the tribes right now are asking for injunctive relief from the federal courts. Uh, you know, declaring that the definition of the compact uh, around the um, automatic renewal of the compact terms, that that has taken place. You know, that the states allow 
uh, continued allowance for non-tribal gaming at Remington Park beyond January 1, 2020, automatically renewed the terms of the compact. And so they're asking a federal court to say that that's the case. The compact has been renewed. End of story. The governor's now come forward and said that he's asking for a declaratory relief from that same federal court saying that the tribal compacts uh, are um, uh, have not been renewed, right. but also asking for immediate cessation to Class Three gaming, which would be devastating to tribal governments, but also devastating to the state's economy. I mean, I, I think that this brinksmanship from the governor's office continues to confound me. I, I think that for somebody who is known as a uh, skilled negotiator and, and a real, you know, who kind of brands himself not as a partisan but as a pragmatist, has really got into a fight here that he there's really no way that he can win and there's really no way that the people of Oklahoma can win. And so digging in and this this uh, response from the governor's office is really over the top and I think, you know, detrimental to his, his position here. Neva. Well, and when and when we talk about on the on the side of the tribes and the fact that the uh, the creeks join, now you have the four, you know, you have the four major tribes that have uh, basically 70% of the gaming revenue right. all together unanimously uh, in a very unified front. You have other tribes, as you say, the Quapaws, which would be the sixth uh, uh, in revenue that's contemplating enter, entering the law suit as well. So, I mean, the, um, uh, the the tribes continue to be very unified in their in the direction that they're going. And in this 41-page response by the governor, I agree, Ryan, that uh, when you begin to look at it, the, the arguments, I mean, really set the stage uh, uh, for, uh, you know, for this fight to continue to escalate at the same time that the governor uh, who initially had said that they were contracting with an out-of-state uh, firm that had a great deal of experience in, in this type of uh, uh, negotiating and dealing with tribes has uh, since not, you know, not signed a contract, not mm-hmm. dealing. Now they have two uh, downtown Oklahoma City law firms involved. And interestingly, there's some there's some interesting personality dynamics involved with that. I mean, you have Steve Mullins, who was the general counsel to uh, uh, Governor Mary Fallon, who now is with the uh, one of the two firms. Uh, you have the uh, um, Jeffrey Cartmill, who's now the deputy uh, counsel in the governor's office, who had been with that firm, previously had been with Governor Fallon, worked as a deputy uh, counsel, uh, also worked as the gaming compliance uh, person for uh, Governor Fallon. So you have all of the, you know, ha- you have all of these uh, uh, personalities and, and players involved that all have these, uh, you know, relationships and how that dynamic impacts this whole process is going to be interesting as well. So it's going to be fascinating, but I think the bottom line, as Ryan says, the impact from the standpoint of how it directly impacts the state of Oklahoma and its citizens is so profound that there needs to be a resolution very, very quickly. And this goes to what the tribes were saying, that this these kind this fight is actually hurting them already financially when people go, well, is it illegal? Is it not illegal to be doing in this Class 3 gaming? Well, and that's why they're asking the federal court to step in and say that what they're doing is allowed under this renewed contract that automatically renewed whenever the governor failed to uh, appropriately uh, uh, come to the table during the negotiation process uh, during all of 2019 and and you know continued to dig his heels in over some really small minor points that if he just made some early concessions he really could have come to the table because tribal government said we don't want to throw the entire compact out and start over but we would be open to amending some provisions of the compact and so you know they that was a, a really solid gesture from the tribes I, you know I think that one of the you know, we're going to see both the legal 
uh, framework here is going to play out. And I think that the tribes are right in recognizing that this is the most, uh, the, the fastest way to get to a resolution. But we're also going to see a political fight, and we see it on the airwaves right now. I, I've heard uh, folks you know, suggest that there ought to be a competing state of the state, perhaps uh, Chuck Hoskin, <laughs> Jr., chief of the Cherokee Nation, uh, talking about the the economic uh, and and cultural um, investments that tribes make in the state of Oklahoma, and in particular in rural Oklahoma. And if you look at rural legislators, Republicans and Democrats, uh, that are direct their their communities and their constituents directly benefit from investments in schools, investments in uh, rural hospitals and infrastructure, lifting those lawmakers up and making them champions for the tribes against the governor in this deal. That there's a political dynamic that will play out. We could, we could see resolution from this in the courts, but the political dy- dynamics of this will play out for years and, and possibly could have an effect into the, the gubernatorial race uh, whenever Stick comes up for re-election. Right. State Senator Jason Smalley is calling it quits. The Stroud Republican says he's leaving his seat next Friday, despite the 2020 legislative session starting three days later. Neva, what does Smalley's leaving mean to the Senate and his district? Well, I mean, we see these departures. I mean, this is not the first one, not the first one uh, that we've even talked about in recent months. So uh, it it comes along. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at this situation with uh, Senator Smalley, here's someone who has spent the majority of his adult life Life, uh, serving in the military uh, with uh, multiple tours in uh, uh, overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, then came to the legislature at a fairly young age. He's only 38 now and is uh, has been there first starting in the House, now in the Senate. And so I think he reached a point, as he said, that it was time for him to enter the business world. He's a, He has three young children. Uh, he, he sent a letter to the governor saying to the governor, perhaps uh, the governor better than anyone could understand the sacrifices that are made when you have young children. And uh, mm-hmm. even, Ryan, you know, Ryan, I think with many of your colleagues, as you saw in the legislature, yeah. I mean, it does, have a, it does have a significant impact. So I think the departure will be rather seamless in terms of the election process because in the even-numbered years it will fall in the regular cycle, meaning it will be a June primary, regular runoff, and, and November election. So uh, there will be uh, there will be some lapse there in terms of representation uh, during this session. But I think uh, uh, for all practical purposes, uh, those you know those citizens with the surrounding legislators uh, as well as House members in the in in the area that is represented by Senator Smalley will uh, you know will be able to meet the immediate needs of those constituents. All right. Well, you know, I think that there, there will be an effect in the legislative session because Senator Smalley last year, if you'll, if you'll remember, I think we talked about it on this program, he, as uh, a chair of a powerful Senate committee, refused to hear some anti-abortion measures and, and you know, really just was, was kind of a grown-up in the room and recognized that these are unconstitutional and they're not going anywhere. It's a waste of time and it divides us in a way that makes other endeavors of the Senate impossible. Uh, you know, the, and so you know, that was a, a real... Um, you know, leadership move by him. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, he. I'm sure he and I disagree on a lot of things, and probably disagree on uh, abortion access and reproductive rights. But he recognized as a legislative and parliamentary matter that that was not a good deal to let those bills even come up for a hearing in his committee. He took a lot of a uh, lot of uh, flack for in that his own town. from his own yeah. from his own uh, own town. And you know, somebody representing a part of Seminole, my my uh, my home county, 
Uh, you know, we're already seeing ripple, ripple effects. Zach Taylor, the state representative uh, for House District 28, uh, you know, my the old House District that I used <laughs> yes, to occupy. Yes, uh, Zach Taylor is now announced that he's going to be running uh, for this Senate district. So we're going to see, uh, a, you know, an, an open seat uh, for the state uh, uh, House of Representatives out of out of uh, House District 28. You know, primarily Seminole County. I mean, that's, um, yeah, so we're, this is going to change a lot of dynamics in the Senate. It'll be interesting to see who takes over those chairmanships. I totally understand. I'm grateful. I mean, I have a, an eight-year-old and a five-year-old now. I'm glad that I didn't have kids when I was in the legislature uh, because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of investment away from your family. And so, you know, regardless of what party you are, you know, thanks for the folks that are making that that sacrifice because it's, it's a real sacrifice. And I think with term limits, it's... Um, you can't really make a career of public service in the legislature the way that you used to. And so, you know, these men and women, uh, especially younger folks that have to at some point figure out how they're going to pay their mortgages whenever they are out of the legislature, take the job. They're always looking for something and you you can't say, well, that'll be there for me in four years because it might not. And you've got an obligation to your family. And I, I understand that. Oh, yeah, I've been going over the, the bills uh, of interest. I've been kind of looking over different bills. And of course, uh, Smalley is one of the, the leadership of the Senate. There are many bills of Smalley's. So now what happens to those bills? Are they DOA or does someone else pick them up? How does that, how does that work? I think a lot of that's going to be up to the discretion of Senate leadership. I mean, the, I, I suspect that uh, especially critical bills uh, will get reassigned to, to new authors. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the particular uh, provision of the rules that, uh, are there, but I know that uh, the leadership with regard to, to Senate authorship, they have a lot of discretion in, in transferring those. So I, I wouldn't suspect that all of his legislative agenda is entirely dead at this point. That's true. And, you know, when you when you talked about the fact that his chairmanship, I mean, as chair of the Health and Human Services Committee, I mean, that is such a significant position uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the responsibilities, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the learning curve. He was also on the Appropriations Subcommittee for Health and Human Services. So you have, uh, you have, uh, you have a, a vacancy now that uh, Senate leadership will have to look and very carefully decide who can come in and really hit the ground running and maintain uh, the the momentum and the need to uh, uh, conduct business in the in those committees and and be involved as this legislative session is uh, you know slightly more than a week away. Spotlight's yeah. always on that committee, but if the governor were able to, I mean, it's been total failure to launch at this point for the governor's al- alternative Medicaid expansion plan, but if he were to have one, I mean, you know, ostensibly it would, it would go through that committee. I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of focus on that committee this legislative session. So we talk about vacuums, you know, Zach Taylor's, you know, trying to move over to take over the Senate seat. There's an opening uh, in House District 28, but there's this internal politics in the Senate now of who's going to be the next chair there. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.